0: Welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Today's book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers by Dr. Lisa Damore. She is an amazing author. Her books leading up to this one have been about girls under pressure and untangled, both really amazing books. But she says after seeing what teenagers experienced because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that she decided to write this book about teenagers in general. It is excellent, and I'm so excited to be talking to you about it today. The complete title is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. This is important even if you are not to the teen years yet. I cannot overstate how important it is to be thinking a little bit about what's coming next. Yes, stay in the present moment with your children, but also be prepared for the next phase. So even if you aren't raising teenagers, I hope you'll stick around and listen. So she opens the book with two quotes. And I think they're both worth hearing for parents. So I'm going to read them to you. The first is Anna Freud, 1958. And it says, I take it that it is normal for an adolescent to behave for a considerable length of time in an inconsistent and unpredictable manner to fight his impulses and to accept them, to love his parents and to hate them, to revolt against them and be dependent on them, to be more idealistic, artistic, generous, and unselfish than he will ever be again, but also the opposite, self-centered, egotistic, calculating. Such fluctuations between extreme opposites would be deemed highly abnormal at any other time of life. At this time, They signify no more than that an adult structure of personality takes a long time to emerge. That's good. I love it. It's so true. So accurate. So accurate. And then the second one is, it is a deep comfort to children to discover that their feelings are a normal part of the human experience. And that's Haim in 1965. So these quotes kind of set the stage for what she's going to talk about. So she opens the book talking about a call she received from an old friend about her child. And the friend says that her family is having to move right before his senior year. And he gets so, so sad when he talks about the upcoming move but that he's fine other times and is still able to enjoy the parts of his life that aren't about the move but he's so 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 sad when they start talking about the move well he's about to be a senior right so any of us would be incredibly sad in that situation and the author goes on to say he's not depressed he's actually mentally well because he can feel and describe a variety of feelings So it's appropriate for him to be sad when he's talking about moving before his senior year and leaving all of his friends, right? So she says, actually, it's the opposite. Your kid's not depressed. Your kid's mentally well. Your kid's able to determine. It's an appropriate response. Yeah, Yeah. it's an appropriate response for this situation. So she says, for teenagers, emotions are a feature, not a bug, which Mm. I thought was so good. She talks about how parents have become afraid of unhappiness. And we are uncomfortable. Our kids are unhappy. So she talks about a few possible causes. The first is that we now have mood-enhancing prescription medication more readily available. She talks about how in the 80s, before Prozac... The only medications we really had that we could use to enhance moods were also incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. in the wrong amounts and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So she says the availability of the prescription medication has helped us kind of recalibrate our scale as to what level of unhappiness is okay or not okay. And then she talks about the wellness industry Mm. and the message that the wellness industry sends young people that mental health is feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. And that if we do self-care and all of that, that we'll feel good all the time. And she says what we know is true from every one of these books we've read, which is that mental health is not feeling good. Mental health is feeling everything, right? Being able to handle all of the feelings. So she talks about how teens in her psychology practice are now coming to her saying they feel like failures at wellness. Because Mm. the wellness industry sends the message that discomfort is preventable. And if you're good enough at wellness, you're not going to feel bad. And so she's having to kind of course correct with some of her teenage clients around that idea, too. And then she talks about the COVID impact on mental health, like what the pandemic did to the mental health of teenagers. And that's completely what you think it would be. The isolation was not helpful at a time that they should be kind of becoming yeah, more independent, doing things sure. on their own. Like, it's exactly to the letter what you think what you would, would expect. Say. Yeah. Yeah. And then she says, um, developing emotional strength and being okay with a range of emotions is important. And this book is a guide to supporting the teenagers we love in that endeavor. She moves into chapter one. Sorry, that was just the introduction, but it was a good stuff. So I had to say it. She talks about just the basics, so Adolescent Emotion 101, and then she talks about getting past the three big myths. So Mm. here's the first myth about adolescent emotion. The first is that emotion is the enemy of reason. So she opens talking about a client of hers who she calls Tom, who was an anxious kid. And she starts seeing him early on in his life, I think like in the middle school years or something. And she is his therapist all throughout middle school and high school. And then when he gets to the end of high school, he's at the top of his class. He's a great student. He's, you know, participates in activities and stuff. He just has some anxiety. And his anxiety is really around separation from his family and his house and stuff like that. It comes time to apply for colleges. And he applies for colleges that are near home. And he goes to meet with his college counselor. And his college counselor, like, tells him that that's disappointing. That Mm. he's cutting himself off and that he's shrinking his Mm. possibilities because of his feelings and Mm -hmm. that he's letting his feelings limit best. him yeah. yeah he reaches out to the author his therapist and says hey can we get together and she's like yeah i've heard from him in years but yeah, yeah i would love to you know and he says like hey this is how i feel about it but mm-hmm. my like I, he basically says i want to set myself up for success and i don't want to be thousands of miles away from home sure. the first semester of my freshman year and realize right this it's was too a huge hard. mistake yeah. like he's like i would rather just find a great college she says in the book what state he's in, but it's a state that has a, lots of options. A right lots there. of amazing options. Yeah. Not even like just options, like yeah. amazing options yeah. for colleges. And she says, well, it sounds to me like you know mm-hmm. what you're doing. She says emotion and reason have been cast as competitors. Right. Cause that mm-hmm. college counselor yeah. is like, Oh, don't let emotion right. guide what you're doing. But in actuality, they can work together yeah. to help you make great point. choices. And she says that emotion and reason being cast as competitors, that goes back to, like, ancient philosophy. Mm -hmm. And if you think about all the personality tests, there's an element of, like, who's a feeler, who's a thinker, like, all that stuff. When in actuality, she says, our feelings can help with our decision making. She says, my friend Terry says it best. So... This is the words of the author's friend, Terry. When it comes to decision making, our emotions should occupy one seat on our board of directors. Mm. So I love that. Yeah. Like, you don't have to discount your feelings if you're trying to make a great decision. Sure. You can include your feelings. Right. As a factor. As a factor. Yes. And so she says other spots on the board of directors might include ethical considerations, personal ambitions, obligations to others, financial or logistical restraints, etc. cetera. So with this structure, emotions have a vote, though rarely should it be the deciding one. And they definitely don't chair the board, right? We're going to consider all the things. A lot of psychological studies show that considering our feelings can improve our decision making. And this makes me think about all the times we say to kids, like, oh, what is your gut telling you? Right. I'm always trying to teach my kids, trust your gut, right? Like, what is your gut telling you to do? So then she goes back to the client with the college applications, and she says, it seems like you've thought this through. And he says, well, what do I say to my college counselor? And then she says, why don't you say, while I appreciate your concern, and while it may seem like my concerns are calling the shot, They're actually just one of many factors guiding me in this decision-making. So I thought that was a brilliant way to say it. Mm -hmm. And then she reframes anxiety, and I love this. She says Tom's anxiety was serving as a wise, measured member of his decision-making board. So how cool is that reframe if we can share it with our kiddos that struggle with anxiety, that it sits on the board, but it's not the whole board. It doesn't 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 have to run the show. Yeah. It doesn't get to run the show, but But it's relevant and we should take it into consideration. Yes. Yes. It can actually help you in that way. And then she talks about helping teenagers to learn to trust their gut. And both painful and pleasant emotions are fundamentally informational. They bubble up throughout our days, giving us feedback. They give us status reports on our lives and help us make decisions. When we're with a certain person and it makes us feel good and we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, I need to spend more time with this person. It makes me feel encouraged, et cetera, right? Or if we're dreading going to a party. Right. Like you're dreading picking out an outfit, you're dreading getting in the car to go. Those feelings of dread. Sure. That might be a sign to you that you need to say, no, thank you yeah right so instead of viewing emotions as disruptive we should look at them as a constant stream of messengers giving us updates on how things are going yeah and then in shocking news she says teenagers don't always see their feelings this way (laughs) 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 they can have a hard time figuring out what's valid when they have very different feelings than their peers so i thought this was interesting too so a teenager is uncomfortable with something that a peer is doing so they mm. might be trying to work it out and they might come to you and say, some girls in my grade skipped physics to go to lunch. Just kind of like drops it and then sussing like, it out, yeah. right? Like she everyone that right around her felt fine with it. Yeah. She didn't feel fine with it. Yeah. So she comes home wanting to talk about it. So this is where the author says, avoid the lecture. Yeah. No matter what, do not launch into a lecture right there. Instead, ask, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. this is an invitation for them to treat their feelings as informative versus us saying what we think as though we are the informant right mm-hmm. so we don't need to be the informant she's already having feelings about yeah. it that are informing her decision and by validating those for her we help her develop that relationship with her gut feelings right in our house we say don't let the predator in the eye If they're gonna talk to you, like just be cautious. Proceed slowly. (laughs) Ask a question. Don't talk. (laughs) Don't look the predator. Yeah. I love it. Anytime we hear our teenagers questioning their feelings, we should reassure. So we say things like, you have a good gut. Pay attention to what it's telling you, right? Validating that. And then she talks about what do we do when teenagers' feelings do not improve the quality of their decision-making because that also happens. So she shares the story of growing up in Minnesota and doing something called skitching, And I say it like that because I'm an Arizona native, so (laughs) I have no idea what it's like to have a Minnesota amount of snow around, but basically they would get... One of their cars from the friends group, friend group, right? And somebody would put on skis oh and hold on to the back bumper of the car, and the car would pull them up and down like oh my abandoned gosh. roads and stuff. Oh Wait for it. The kids who weren't currently skitching were sitting in the trunk facing the skitcher, oh having gosh. conversations and hanging out, right? right and so she talks about how she was a level-headed kid, like she. Mm-hmm. You know, went on to college, got a PhD. Like She was not a risk-taking kid. She just got together with some of her friends and was like, hey, this sounds like a fun idea. So this is what she says. It kind of validates what psychologists have discovered, which is that teens are literally of two minds. (laughs) So there's one mind that's the assessing danger in the light of day mind. And then there's the second mind, which is the I'm with my friends and we're having fun mind. Oh, goodness. Terrifying <laughs> for the adults in the lives of teenagers. But psychologists call this cold cognition and hot cognition. So it's determined by where the teenagers are and what's happening around them. Again, terrifying. Yeah. So cold cognition is your kid at your kitchen counter telling you their plans for the night going to this party i think people might be drinking there i'm definitely not gonna drink mm. i'll probably be the designated driver don't worry everything's fine hot cognition your teenager arrives at the party to hang out with their friends everyone's drinking and they're like well looks good yeah nah, i changed my mind so what are we supposed to do now that we know our, our kids, kids lead <laughs> double lives and they're teenagers so she says first Take comfort in laws that are created because of this phenomenon. So if you look at like graduated driver license laws, those laws are in place because we know that risk behavior plus peer acceptance equals pleasure to the teenage brain. Like in Arizona, you can only have one other teenager in the car with you for a certain amount of months and all that stuff because they know that teens with a group of other teens... It's not the strongest decision-making yeah. opportunities. <laughs> Does it always lead to the best decision-making? And then she says, actually, with every additional teenager in the car, the chances of an accident goes up. Oh, yeah. Every sure. single additional teenager yeah. adds to it. So she says, second, knowing that teens switch between hot and cold cognition, we can think in advance about how that may play out and ask curious questions accordingly. We know what's going to happen when mm-hmm. they get to the party, even if they don't, mm-hmm. in cold cognition, know what the hot cognition is sure. going to look like. We kind of do, right? Because sure. we've already been there. have lived it. Yeah. So we can ask questions. And then she says, clever teens use a variety of strategies to stay on track. So then she says, keep in mind, she's an expert. To be clear, what teenagers tell their peers in the interest of staying safe need not be true. So if ever sure. you were going to allow your child to tell a lie, now This time. is the time, yeah. right? She says, use the cold cognition to create a plan for when hot cognition takes over. I've kind of decided reading this too, I'm just going to have the cold cognition, hot cognition conversation. Sure. I'm going to say, hey, this is what happens in your brain yeah. when you get around peers, sure, right? Like, sure. why are we gatekeeping this information? Right. I yeah. think we just say it straight out. And then she says, be aware that sometimes the planning works and sometimes Sometimes it doesn't because that's the power of that hot cognition. So I don't know if that was helpful and hopeful or (laughs) a little bit scary, but I'll let you guys weigh in on that as the listeners. Okay. And then myth number two is that difficult emotions are bad for teens. So she gets a call from the principal at a school that she is a regular consultant with And the principal says, hey, I am getting a ton of pushback from parents about our literature and history curriculum, because there's a lot of stuff in it that is hard to read. And it's making parents uncomfortable that their children will be uncomfortable reading the texts. And the principal's like, my hunch is to push it through and do what we do. But I'm wondering what you think. And the author says, you know, research shows that reading about difficult things actually develops empathy. We need to stop protecting kids from feeling uncomfortable. Like there are uncomfortable things in our history and there are uncomfortable things written about in books that happen to people. We have to balance that because emotional discomfort actually promotes growth and feeling the emotional impact of difficult experiences helps us grow up. Mm-hmm. And my take on this is this is why we don't rescue kids from consequences of their own actions, mm-hmm. right? If we sure. rescue them from the consequences, then they don't get the benefit of the part that makes them grow. This is what she says. And this kind of ties into what we talked about the last book. One thing to know is substance abuse halts the growth. Mm-hmm. It numbs the pain sure. so that they can get through it without feeling, feeling the it. true weight of the consequence. Yeah. So just to be totally Aware of that as things happen in your teenager's life. And then she says, We have to take some steps to be okay with our teens not being okay. So she says, Try to notice when you're going out of your way to keep your team from being upset. Mm. Um, There's one story she tells where this mother keeps bringing up soccer at the dinner table. Like, did you train? Have you practiced for this? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And then the person's spouse finally asks like, hey, why do you keep bringing up soccer at dinner? Like you're making dinner miserable. He doesn't want to talk about soccer every night. His whole demeanor changes like, stop doing that. And she takes the time to like sit down and think about, hey, why am I bringing this up? And she realizes she's trying to ensure that her son makes the team because she knows it's gonna be so painful if he doesn't. We're trying to protect them from that feeling where at 15 getting cut from the soccer team feels like the end of the world. Now on the north side of 40, we know getting cut from the soccer team when you're 15 is not a big deal. But in that moment, it it does feel like it. Yeah. And so not that we want our kids to get cut from the soccer team, but if you're bringing it up every single night at dinner to help them avoid that, like that maybe is a time to check yourself and see what lessons he could learn from managing his own training, committing to his own process um, to make the team. And then the balance for us as parents is sending both of the messages. Life will go on. You will feel better soon. Mm -hmm. And also... Your suffering is real. Yeah. This is hard and it really yeah. stinks, right? So just kind of balancing those two things. And she says the best way to do that is to stay calm. Be calm. Mm-hmm. We send the message that things are okay when we're calm. Sure. So Glennon Doyle in the book Untamed talks yes. about serving the peanuts, yep. right? Yep. So when you're on an airplane and there's turbulence yep. and um, you look at the flight attendant Mm-hmm. And if it's turbulent and the flight attendants keep doing their job, yeah, they you continue to hand yeah. out peanuts. You're like, all right, yeah. she's okay. calm. She's okay. it's fine, right? Yeah. yeah. So I always view these moments as like what I call serving the peanuts moments, right? Like I'm just going to keep serving the peanuts because I know it's going to turn out fine, right? right? But what we can't have is looking at flight attendants who are like, this is terrible. (laughs) This is, the plane's going to crash. It's going down. Like that doesn't help anybody, right? Just keep serving the peanuts. And then this is hard because of the old adage to which there is some truth. You're only as happy as your least happy child, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure, you've heard that. And then she says we have to remember that painful emotions are rarely harmful, and there's sure. a difference between the two. And then she goes into a little bit about when teens should be shielded, and then she talks about trauma. And she says we've turned trauma, the word trauma, into part of our regular vernacular. Yeah. And the problem with that is that we use trauma, we use trauma, that word, to describe how it would feel if you know, how it felt to get mugged or into a bad mm-hmm. car accident and what it felt like getting stranded at the airport or watching our favorite sports team lose a game in the final few seconds, right? Right. So she says for this purpose, she's gonna use the mental health definition, which is that trauma refers to the emotional impact of a terrible event, not to the terrible event itself. So she talks about how, in terms of the brain science around trauma, traumatic experiences while the brain is developing can cause damage to the cells responsible for the functioning of the nervous system. So we are shielding from the things that cause trauma. We do not want their brain function obviously limited. So the things that are going to cause emotional impact that is lasting and negative, we need to shield from. So we are not shielding from the things that cause growth those little painful hiccups in life that teach us things, we are shielding from the things that cause trauma. Long lasting emotional damage to developing brains. Yes. Okay, myth number three. With their amped up emotions, teens are psychologically frail. She goes on to say emotional does not mean fragile. And we get confused about this because the adolescent emotions come out with such intensity so that causes alarm for us but we have to remember number one teens carry themselves differently at home than they do in the world they're often not in the world exploding emotionally etc right Number two, mental health is having appropriate feelings at appropriate times and managing them. So sure. you're not mentally well just because you're happy all the time. Right. In fact, I'd offer. you probably not. Yeah, you're probably not. You're not okay. able to move into some of those sadder feelings and sadder places, right? Or harder, I should say, not necessarily sadder, but harder places. Appropriate feelings at appropriate times. And number three, teenagers have coping strategies that they employ. They use humor. They use, you know, time with their Mm -hmm. friends. So Mm -hmm. um, we have to respect and honor that, too, that they aren't just out there flailing in the world. So then she discusses when to seek professional support. She says, you probably don't need to be worried if your kid is sad about something for a little while. But you should be concerned if they are sad about everything for days at a time. So for anxiety, she says, again, when it makes sense. So her example is, if your child is 16 years old and driving on icy roads for the first time, hands at 10 and 2 and is a little bit nervous, that anxiety is going to provide a higher level of attention and Mm -hmm. get them safely out of this situation. That's appropriate anxiety. But anxiety about other things when it doesn't fit the situation, that's the anxiety we need to be concerned about. Like when the alarm bells are ringing in situations that are completely safe, right? So it's kind of looking at like, okay, wait, is this emotional thing serving them right now Mm -hmm. leading to better decision making? Or is this a hindrance in terms of finding or seeking professional help. help? And then she says, watch for how they're dealing with tough stuff. Are they employing adaptive strategies? That's a yes. Are they using substances to numb? That's a no, right? And then she says, be aware of denial. So something happens and the child completely denies that it Mm. ever happened. That's a red flag. Repression. Something happens and the kid just completely stuffs, 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 shows no emotion about it, doesn't want to talk about it, all that. That's a red flag. And then disassociation completely Mm -hmm. zones out when the tough stuff comes up. Those are all causes for seeking professional help. So that is part one of this book. It is so full of just amazing information and I cannot wait to move on to the next part with you next week. Remember, whatever you're facing in parenting, it won't always be this way. Have a great week. What do a tick and the Eiffel Tower have in common? What? They're both Paris sites.